today from the book of Mark and chapter 2. You may like to find on, in your own Bibles or on your device. It will also be on the screen behind. So it's Mark chapter 2. We're beginning at verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is God's word. Let me welcome our special guest for the third and final time for this time being with us, Dr. John Dixon. Uh, and if I can just ask you a question before John comes up, while he's coming up, um, I just want you to reflect on where you are with the living God this day, because it's a very powerful message John's got for us today, very helpful message. I've heard it once, I'm looking forward to hearing it again. But let's have our hearts open to God and hearing him speak to us as John comes and bring the message. Can you welcome Dr. John Dixon? Thank you. Thanks, Bruce. Um, I love this passage. Uh, it's not that I didn't love last week's passage, but um, I really love this one. And uh, whenever I hear it, uh, I, I'm reminded that when I was first introduced to the Christian faith, uh, about 15 or 16 years of age, I assumed all Christians were just like this passage. Like, I really thought all Christians were celebratory, always whining and dining with everyone, welcoming to sinners and saints alike. And if that hasn't been your impression, uh, you know, I, I understand. Um, but for me, that was my original impression. And, and the reason for this happy assumption on my part was this woman whom I've mentioned uh, many times uh, before in, in this church, in fact. Uh, indeed, four years ago, almost to the day, I led her funeral right here, right here. Uh, it's my um, scripture teacher from Mossman High School. And um, she was smart and funny, had answers to all my smart aleck questions. And she constantly held feasts at her home. Uh, for everyone and my mates and I would turn up Friday afternoons after school and gorge ourselves on her hamburgers, her milkshakes and her scones and it's remarkable how many photos of Glenda have sneaky scones in the shot and then she would read to us uh, from these gospels and field our questions and this was my doorway into the Christian faith. Uh, ditto for my best mate, Ben, who you can also see up there in that shot. Um, after Glenda died, her family produced a cookbook 
uh, in her honor because she was such a massive foodie. They wanted uh, all of her friends and family to have her recipes. And uh, on one of the pages, they had to put the recipe for her scones. And uh, can you see what they called them? Salvation scones. Uh, a little nod to, uh, to me and my mates. Anyway, she put up with so much from us. Um, not just that, you know, sometimes we turned up as 20 people when we told her it'd be five or six, or other times we didn't turn up at all when she'd prepared a big spread for us. They're the simple things. I mean, we really gave her a hard time. Like, we turned up at her home completely drunk one evening at midnight. Uh, we even stole from her, and uh, not me personally, uh, but... Um, one of the lads in, in those um, scone and Bible sessions uh, pinched her, I guess it was a VCR, not a DVD player, pinched her VCR and sold it for drug money. The next week, uh, all she said was, I seem to have lost my VCR player. <laughs> if any of you can find out where it is, that'd be, that'd be great. So uh, what I'm saying is, in those days, I had no idea there was such a thing in the universe like a bigoted Christian. No idea there were Christians who would judge you, who would look at your behavior and decide not to be your friend, not to have you at their table. No idea. Of course, I learned that later, right, when I started going to church, but uh, at that time, I was blissfully ignorant. Glenda epitomized for me one of the most compelling aspects of the life of the historical Jesus. He whined and dined with those classed sinners. I know that term sinner is like quaint now, but these are the openly irreligious and immoral. And the thing is, the sinners responded by throwing dinner parties <laughs> in his honor and inviting all their sinner buddies over to meet with the great teacher, Jesus. And predictably, the religious leaders were not well pleased. They were aghast. And in history circles, this is known as the problem of table fellowship. And I kid you not, there are entire peer review articles and even monographs on this question of meals and Jesus breaking dining laws in the ancient world. Uh, to quote Graham uh, Stanton from Cambridge University, sharing a meal with a friend today is often no more than a convenient way of consuming food. In the Greco-Roman and Jewish world of the first century, however, eating food with another person was far more significant socially. It indicated that the invited person was being accepted into a relationship in which the bonds were as close as in family relations. One normally invited to meals and accepted <laughs> invitations to have meals, only people whom one considered social and religious equals. In this context, Jesus' openness, his keenness even to dine with sinners is remarkable. And as I say, that's why there is concerted historical research into it. But it's not just history. This is spiritually transformative. This is a story that changes everything, actually, for both the church and society. It challenges the church to think about its stance toward the naughty world. It challenges the world with what do you really think 
of Jesus Christ and Christianity. So, if you don't mind, I want to dive in uh, to this passage together. This very brief uh, couple of paragraphs is really part B to last week's scene. If you were there, I'm sorry about that, but the two stories do seem to be linked uh, geographically and thematically. Uh, Last week, we um, were in the beginning of Mark chapter 2, and a paralyzed man is brought to Jesus and um, let down through the roof because they couldn't get in the front door. And uh, Jesus' first words to the paralyzed man were not, be well, they were, uh, your sins are forgiven. And the religious authorities were struck that Jesus would say this, and they declared, who can forgive sins but God alone? Who is this uh, fellow? Well, today's text takes us out of that Capernaum home and just down to the beach at Capernaum, uh, less than 100 metres away from where the houses of Capernaum are, and you can visit those houses today. And down at the beach in Jesus' day, the fishing boats are landing, the market stalls are all set up, uh, tax collector booths are there collecting their duties on the fish and the other products coming uh, uh, to the shore. And the crowds have followed Jesus out of the Capernaum house down to the lake. The scene is lovely to try and picture. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them as he walked along. So you meant to picture Jesus coming out of the house and everyone just saying, tell us more, tell us more, right? And they're following him down uh, to the beach. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. So here's the thing. No sooner has he demonstrated his authority to forgive sins up in the house. Then he's going down to the beach to find more sinners to forgive. That's how these two stories are linked. He's teaching all the while. Maybe he's explaining that that miracle you just saw up there in the house is really a picture, a sign that one day God would mend all things in his kingdom. On the other hand, maybe he was saying to the crowd, now you know everyone needs forgiveness, not just a sympathetic character like the paralyzed man, everyone, prepare yourself for that, everyone is going to get forgiveness. Whatever he was teaching, he eventually arrives at a tax collector's booth. This is a a, a mobile office, right? Easy to pack up, easy to set up, Uh, probably some people to help guard the money, Uh, taking the duties on the fish that are caught and uh, the other kinds of uh, oils and uh, grapes and so on. And Jesus stops at the tax collector's booth. And everyone's thinking, no doubt, he's going to give him a big serve about justice and greed. And Jesus says, Levi, follow me. This is his signature call that we hear in the Gospels to come and be a student of my school. And it's not the first time these crowds in Galilee have heard this signature call of Jesus. Um, Back in chapter 1, this is also set in Capernaum, Uh, we read, um, this is maybe weeks or months earlier, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, that's, we know him as Peter, and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets 
and followed him. So here's the thing. By the time we get to our scene, the crowds are no doubt wondering who's next. Who's going to get the call to join the great school of the great teacher? You can be sure no one was thinking it would be a tax collector. Least of all the tax collectors. But Jesus walks up and says, follow me. To a tax collector. Now I know we're thinking tax collector. What's wrong with tax collectors? They're they're great. I like my tax collector. Um, Good white collar, decent work. Um, But they had a terrible reputation in this period. Terrible. For two reasons. One, they collected money... Uh, for the Romans and uh, for the Rome-appointed um, authorities like Herod Antipas, who ruled Galilee, right? And so they were seen as collaborating with an occupying power. But even more than that, tax collectors were seen as ripping people off constantly. And the reason for this is there were no checks and balances in ancient taxation. Um, so long as a tax collector gave to the authorities the agreed amount of taxation... A tax collector was allowed to extract from the population whatever else he felt he could get. And that was his salary. That was his, the way he, he lived. There's a humorous statue from, um, from this period. <laughs> uh, to Sabinus, the inscription says, an honest tax collector. And it's, uh, the implication, of course, is this was a rare thing and so worthy of making a statue. Uh, there was at least one Uh, honest tax collector so the thing is what is Jesus doing with a tax collector and his sinner buddies the passage goes on while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples for there were many who followed him when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors they asked his disciples why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees mentioned here are a pretty popular faction of um, uh, first century religious Jewish people whose big thing in life is you have to separate yourself from anything that's unholy. In fact, the word Pharisee probably comes from the word parush, meaning to separate. So their whole thing was be separate from the sinners, separate from what is ungodly, unclean. And you know what? Some of the rules of the Pharisees have survived. We actually know what they thought about tax collectors. Here's one very cool passage from uh, the Mishnah, which contains the rules of the Pharisees, all about certain kinds of sinners and who you can have into your home or not, right? Uh, You'll get a sense of how they thought about these things. Concerning thieves who enter your house, only the place trodden by the thieves is unclean and they render unclean in those rooms where they've trodden uh, the foods and the liquids and the clay utensils which are open but the couches and the seats and the clay utensils which are sealed with a tight seal are clean concerning tax collectors who enter your house the whole house is unclean (laughs) right I mean the story is tax collectors are worse than thieves thieves only make the certain rooms and hallways where they've been unclean spiritually Tax collectors make the whole show gone. So, when Jesus goes to the home of Levi and has a dinner party with Levi's friends who are tax collectors and sinners, 
He is, according to the thinking of the day, contaminating himself spiritually, making himself unclean. So the thing is, why? Why would he do this? I know it would be fun to just think of Jesus as the ultimate party animal, you know, always looking for a good time with buddies, right? But that would be to empty this of its ancient meaning. This is another real-life example of Jesus' mission and authority to forgive sins. That's what this is. Sinners don't contaminate him. He cleanses sinners. And we're not just talking about people we might think of sympathetically, like um, the paralyzed man up in the house in Capernaum. You know, we sort of feel sympathetic and so he gets free forgiveness of sins and we think, oh yeah, fair enough, He's, he's had a hard life, it'd be good if he got forgiven. No, no, Jesus wants to reach the openly corrupt and irreligious like Levi and his buddies. And it's important to stress this because Levi was not a lowly outcast and Jesus was just this beautiful, social, lefty inclusion officer looking for outcasts to, you know, to bring into the family. That's not what's going on here. Levi had wealth. He had power over the people of Capernaum. People had to look up to him. He had loads of friends. We might quibble about you know, why they were friends with him. But he, he was doing fine. So the complaints of the Pharisees are not completely irrational. The Pharisees could have made a really good argument why someone like Levi should not become a student of a holy teacher like Jesus. And they could have made an equally good argument why a holy teacher like Jesus should not be having a meal at Levi's house. Again, Professor Stanton, I think, captures this well. The sinners were not simply apathetic about religious observance. They were those who intentionally ignored God's commandments. So Jesus insisted on accepting openly in intimate table fellowship those who were notorious for their dishonesty or their high-handed rejection of the law. Jesus was not just a social lefty who takes the side of the underdog. He is the Lord of all. He is the Savior of all. And he wants to mend everyone. And in fact, that's his point back to the Pharisees. In reply, he says, I'm I'm the doctor who's come to mend. This is what he replies to the Pharisees. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous but the sinners. Uh, Now, it's possible, just uh, by way of sidebar, that Jesus is being sarcastic when he refers to the healthy and the righteous, okay? In that case, it would be a little dig at the Pharisees who think they're righteous, who think that they're healthy and they don't need a savior. Possibly, possibly. It's equally possible that Jesus simply means there are people who are already good with God. I don't mean good in the strict moral sense, but they're good with God. They're already healthy because they've already been touched by the love of God in their life. 
And, and frankly, uh, today, this morning anyway, I'm 57% confident that second interpretation is the right one. But the day is still young. Either way, we mustn't miss the main point. Don't fret about who are the healthy, who are the righteous. The main point is this. Jesus came to find sinners. Whether the sympathetic characters, like the paralyzed man, or the complete jerks, like Levi. Because he wants to mend us all back to God. In the previous scene, he literally mended a paralyzed man as a picture of his forgiveness of sins. And now Jesus is out there at the beach, actively searching for unsympathetic characters and drawing them into the divine forgiveness. In other words, this is not liberal open-mindedness on the part of Jesus. This is serious, traditional Jesus wanting to save everyone. He is the divine doctor. He is the savior. And he'll walk these shores of Galilee for another year or so, gathering up sinners, and then he'll make his way south to Jerusalem where his vision of faith with God will clash with the local vision and he'll end up being crucified by the Romans, not just as a political martyr, but according to all of the gospels. That's when he bore the punishment of sinners. He gave his perfect life for sinners, for Levi, for the paralyzed man, for me, for you. You may see yourself as a sympathetic character you may know yourself to be a complete jerk. Either way, we all need Christ. We all need forgiveness. We need his mending. Um, last week I mentioned that many of us instinctively claim we're mostly good and mostly getting better. Um, but as I said last week, it's pretty hard to maintain if you know thyself. I think if we're really honest, we know we don't live up to our own standards, let alone Christ's, my goodness. And so in our honest moments, guilt persists. Uh, last week, just last week, I, I interviewed um, a well-known academic in the US um, for my podcast, Bill McClay. He's a professor of history at the University of Oklahoma. And he also is the author of one of the most insightful pieces of sort of modern historical analysis that I've read in, in recent years. It's called The Strange Persistence of Guilt. And uh, I know that doesn't sound like it, a very happy read, but it's, it's awesome. It's basically a history of how we in the West have coped with guilt. Uh, with the demise of, of religion. And he runs through the various philosophers and psychologists that have tried to dispel guilt from our culture. And there's some great sections on uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, the famous 19th century atheist, who said, God is dead, don't worry about it. And there's no objective authority above us, so there's no objective guilt. And people went, oh, okay, yeah, no objective guilt. And yet guilt lingered everywhere in 19th century Europe. 
and early 20th century Europe. And so a generation later, Sigmund Freud came to the rescue and dealt with subjective guilt, that feeling that maybe we're not right, that there's something or someone above us to whom we are accountable. The thing is, Freud was also an atheist, and he thought that feeling of guilt was irrational, but he also said it's everywhere, (laughs) everywhere. And he he said that, that many of the psychological maladies that people experience really is just displaced and reformed guilt. You need more therapy, of course. But actually, the most interesting thing of Maclay's analysis, and the thing I wanted to interview him about, is the way he describes that with the demise of Christianity from the Western world, Westerners struggle to have the language of guilt they used to have and struggle with the tools to assuage guilt. And he has this amazing analysis of how modern Westerners are coping with guilt and trying to remove guilt from their lives. And it's really three things. See if, see if this rings true. He speaks of, firstly, an obsession with therapeutic measures. Right? Um, people go to counselors for all sorts of things. Um, people are reading self-help books. They're always trying to get the latest diet and try and get fit. And it's a way of improving myself, perhaps to cover Guilt. Secondly, he says, a growing severity in mob shaming. I don't know if that rings true with you. Um, what he's saying here is we cope with our own guilt by ferociously projecting worse guilt onto worse sinners. And we do it as a mob and we feel righteous as a result. And thirdly, a rush to identify with or as victims. Because, of course, victims are the only innocents amongst us. Like, if someone's a victim, they're not, you know, almost by definition, we think that they're not guilty. And so we identify as victims, or at least the friend of victims, and we're assuaging our guilt. We must be the righteous. Now, the really interesting thing is, Maclay doesn't offer a Christian solution. His thing is just, this is blooming unhealthy, and who knows where it's going to end up. But there is a solution. There is a solution. Become a patient of the doctor. A student of the Christ. Child of God. He will welcome you to his table. He will shower you with actual forgiveness. He will forgive your understandable sins and your outlandish sins. And he'll teach you his ways and mend you. We can't remove guilt by pretending we're good, by shaming others and thinking, well, at least they're worse than I am. Or through counseling, as important as counseling sometimes is, or by finding safety in victimhood. Actual forgiveness is the solution. The actual forgiveness that Christ objectively died for, taking your past, your present, and your future wrongdoings into himself. So you are objectively clean. And in time, 
as you learn the gospel more deeply, subjectively convinced. Although you're not good through and through, you're forgiven through and through. It changes everything. But I want to close by saying there must be a moment of acceptance to experience this. There must be a moment of acceptance. Uh, We saw last week, this paralyzed man had faith. He placed his faith in Jesus. That's what the text says. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. In our text, Levi responded to the call, follow me. And he responded, he accepted Christ into his home. For me, as I said, it was eating scones and listening to Glenda read the gospel to us. And and I just found myself thinking, I trust this one in the gospels. I trust him. There has to be a moment of acceptance. For my good friend Aisha, it happened in a very different way, but again, a moment of acceptance. I can't show you her face and I can't even tell you her real name because she comes from a culture where it is illegal to convert to Christianity and personally shameful for the family. But she investigated the Christian faith. She read Mark's gospel and Matthew and Luke and John's gospel. (laughs) She became quite a Jesus expert, had all her intellectual questions dealt with. And then in the end, the moment of her acceptance was when she realized what Levi realized. She's not good. Guilt remains. And Christ is the source of forgiveness. Christ makes amends, she says, for what I have done. I don't make amends. He has made amends by dying for me. Have a listen in her own words. In my mind, um, Islam and Sharia was an idealistic way to live, which could lead you to heaven on earth, and that's what we're attempting. So it, it took a long period of time for me to realize that laws do not change the core of what a person is. And that was one of the bigger changes in my thinking. So what was it that tipped you over the edge to say, oh my goodness, I'm a Christian? I tried really hard to be good <laughs> um, for, for around a month when I was still wrestling and everything. You managed a month being really good, did you? I, I, I tried. I was, I'm very stubborn. <laughs> and I tried, okay, tomorrow I'm not going to be annoyed by this colleague of mine or I'm going to be more patient. And I came home and I said, I can't do it. And it took a lot of convincing for me to realize that I'm not as good as I think I am. And I then took communion at, at um, this church. And I remember because I was crying in the pews and I was trying to hide my face, <laughs> but I was utterly broken at that point. So. And that was a kind of moment where you said, you can't save yourself, but here is the gift yeah. that's yours. And how often do you get a God trying to make amends for what you've done.
How often do you get a God trying to make amends for what you have done? The answer is once. Once in the history of ideas. Did God himself enter our world, live the life we could never live, and then give that life on a cross for us? And rise again so that he can offer Aisha, Dixon, Levi, the paralyzed man, and you, forgiveness. But there must be a moment of acceptance. So will you accept this? Will you put your faith in him? Will you welcome him to your table, into your life? Will you hear him say, follow me? And you say, yeah. And in that is full forgiveness. It's remarkable. And those of us that are Christians, you know, for years, just don't see it the way Aisha saw it. How often do you get a God making amends for what I have done? But for those of you who don't know where you are, Will you pray with me? And if these words feel like words you want to acknowledge to God, then just in your own mind and your own heart, uh, echo them to God who listens to us now. Lord, please give each one of us clarity of mind to think these things through. Please give us open hearts to know ourselves. But Lord, mostly I just acknowledge I am not all that I should be. My guilt is real. But thank you for sending Jesus to teach, to heal, to die and rise for our forgiveness. Please, Lord, receive me now. I welcome you now. In Jesus' name, amen.